Welcome to Hungry Minds. This is Aram Levasseur. Today my conversation is with Amos Klausner, where we talk about his letterpress artwork, the value of deconstructing language, the nature of truth, and when word becomes image. Amos, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, we're going to be talking about uh, letterpress artwork uh, that you create. But before jumping into that, I think a bit of context is important. So what is your distilled biography that you think would be relevant for this conversation? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm an art history major. And um, after school, I started working for a variety of different nonprofit organizations, um, the American Institute of Architects, uh, a few museums, uh, and then eventually the uh, American Institute of Graphic Arts. So I have a, a, a strong background in architecture and design. I'm, uh, I like to think that I'm a design historian. I've written a book about Heath Ceramics, which is a mid-century ceramics uh, factory in uh, Sausalito, California. A lot of people around here know Heath. Uh, they may have it in their uh, kitchen. Uh, it's really beautiful stuff. Uh, and there came a point where I realized that I was, you know, doing a lot of stuff for other people, and maybe I wasn't fulfilling my own needs as kind of a closet artist. <laughs> and um, one of the things that uh, I always tell people is that uh, you shouldn't look for fulfillment in your day job alone that if you're not happy, that you've got to find some kind of outlet for that happiness. And for me, it's, you know, it's the process of, of uh, creativity. Uh, now, I, I'm no longer in the nonprofit world. I realized that it, it was very interesting, but it had a, a negative impact on my, on my wallet. So <laughs> uh, about 12 years ago, I took a job with a uh, consulting company and I'm currently an art director uh, for that company. And uh, I, the work perhaps is not as interesting. But again, like I said, I found my outlet, right. as I always encourage other people to do. Absolutely. Uh, before uh, jumping into uh, the artwork that we see before us, and we'll be uh, describing uh, some of this, I'm curious, what, what really, I guess, what artwork influenced you when you studied art history? What inspired you and probably even if it's indirect uh with some of the letterpress work uh do you find uh worthy of attention well the first my my, my first uh, love is uh medieval artwork and which may sound strange uh but when i was in school this is really the was the focus of my studies uh, what i like about medieval artwork is that it emerges at a time where um, education is primarily experienced through the church, and they the process of, of, of educating people is really about pictures and very kind of uh, brief captions, just to kind of reinforce whatever uh, stories are important to kind of the daily lives of, of the people then. Uh, I love the flatness of the artwork itself, uh, whether it is uh, uh, made from tile or it is uh, a very kind of rough sculpture or it's uh, some kind of a painted piece. Uh, so that is my kind of my real interest 
And most people, when they hear that, they think, well, God, that's, that's a little strange for, for a guy that does what he does. Yeah. Uh, but it's true. Yeah. And there's something about the idea of, of art as education tool. Right. Uh, and I think that that has kind of resurfaced now, especially uh, in the second decade of, of this century, where a lot of artists are, uh, are activists. And right. uh, they're trying to say something through their work. And uh, so... Uh, I'm interested in that, and I'm certainly trying to say something in my work. I'm just not trying to say the same things other people are, are saying. So that's one area that I, that I kind of really feel connected to. And then the other is kind of word-based art from the from the 1970s and 80s. Um, people like Jenny Holzer and Alan Ruppersberg, people that uh, realize that that you know, not coming out of abstraction. That uh, after we had kind of blasted away at the representational image and we had accepted abstraction that maybe we didn't need an image at all. Maybe the the word or the the, the word would conjure the image for us mm. and and that would be enough. And I think that that's very much the case. Uh, if we can't conjure the image ourselves with our own imagination, then that's kind of a kind of a sad comment on right. on our own our own creativity or our own intellect and so uh word based art is is i think very interesting stuff but you know the truth is is that uh i'm an artist but my my technical skills as an artist are are pretty limited so you won't find me drawing a beautiful portrait uh, or painting a beautiful portrait anytime soon so the only thing that's left for me really is words um but I will say that uh, you know, uh, as a as someone who is is part of the graphic design community, uh, I'm pretty good with uh, with text and typography, and so that's kind of where I yeah. I kind of found my my happy spot. Excellent. <clears throat> well, I think it was interesting just your interest in medieval art, the context you provided, art is educational tool. So that seems to be a linchpin in, in part of your appreciation for it. And I think that's a good segue to the art that you're creating in the sense that you are trying to convey and communicate ideas in some sort of capacity and to the community. Uh, so jumping into letterpress artwork, and in your case, it's exhibited in the community or on the street. What is letterpress artwork, first of all? Well, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, so letterpress printing has been around since the time of Gutenberg, uh, and it continues today, although it's hiding in kind of dark, dusty corners of old studios uh, tucked away in, in, in back alleys. Uh, <laughs> uh, I work out of a studio in uh, Point Reyes, California, and uh, it's a small studio with a limited uh, selection of, of type uh, and a few uh, Asburn uh, brand uh, proofing presses. Uh, for people who are into letterpress, it's very important that they know that it's an Asburn. For everybody else, don't worry about it. Um, so it, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a selection of wood and metal type. Uh, that wooden metal type is is placed on the uh, on the press itself. It's locked into place uh, using a variety of different tools. Uh, then uh, ink is added to the ink rollers. Uh, in the case of the Asburn proofing press, those rollers are mechanized, so you, in a sense, flip the switch and the ink then uh, gets distributed across those rollers. Uh, and then, in order to uh, to actually create a print, you you insert a piece of paper 
uh, into the, um, the drum of the, of the press and you use a hand crank and you literally crank it across the, the type that you have placed in the bed of the press. Uh, and the result is, um, is your letterpress piece. And uh, every time you want to change a color, you have to clean the press and add a new color. Every time you want to uh, correct a mistake that you've made, you have to yeah. kind of stop and, and make that correction and perhaps relock your type, move it around. There's, there's a lot to it. Um, I find that it is, uh, it's hard work, but it's the kind of hard work that I need uh, to get my mind off of all of the other stuff that I don't want to be thinking about, but I tend to focus on. So, in a sense, the process of making a letterpress print for me is a meditation. Right. Uh, so, some people go to the ashram or they, you know, they can sit in silence, uh, and that's great. Uh, Mine is a little bit different. I think everybody has a different way that they meditate. Uh, so for me, the ability to spend two, three, or four hours at the studio uh, focused just on the work itself and, uh, and crafting it, fixing it, creating it, and uh, just totally immersed in it right. is, <clears throat> is a really wonderful and therapeutic thing for me. Right. And I think it's worth emphasizing that point. <clears throat> because you're using analog tools in a digital age, and I don't think you're the only one. There's sort of a nostalgia in some respects, but I think it's more its more than nostalgia. I think it perhaps is perhaps meditative. It's a countervailing force to this hyperspeed that we have at our fingertips, in our pockets, on our desktops, in a particular way. And so much of this, as we were talking about before hitting record, could be done in a certain way digitally, uh, maybe you wouldn't have the exact same look and feel, but <clears throat> to the uh, to the un, uninformed, it might look very similar. But I think it's the process that you're saying that's so meaningful using these this this movable type technology. Yeah, it, it certainly is. In fact, you know, I could I could design everything on the computer, and I could uh, send that uh, file out and get a polymer plate created. And it would look a lot better than, than, <laughs> yeah. the, than the stuff that I create because there's mm. a, a consistency to the right. to the polymer plates. Uh, the wood and metal type that I use, some of this stuff is hundreds of years old, and so there are divots in the in the letters themselves, or they're uneven, so they don't necessarily ink properly. And um, mm. so there's a lot of fluidity in the process, right. uh, and you have to be okay with that. If, in fact, when I first started uh, letterpress printing, I tried really hard to make everything look perfect. Right. And I found that that was a real uphill battle. I felt like Sisyphus, just pushing that boulder uphill. <laughs> so I, I've, I've come to accept um, imperfection, right. which when we talk again about this idea of meditation and, and therapeutic uh, processes... This ability to accept imperfection is, right. is it's an important one, especially for me, because I tend to, to want things to be perfect. Right. Um, so uh, I can't remember the question. What was the question? I want to answer that. <laughs> well, I, I think you've been answering. I just wanted to emphasize that I do think what's so compelling is not just, and we're going to get to a moment, uh, what some of these words are, 
but but just the process that you're using this analog technology in a digital world where you're saying yeah the digital version it might it might actually look a lot better but it wouldn't be as better for your soul exactly. so to speak right. thank you and uh, and so I think that's great I, I'd imagine a lot of people could could resonate with that as we were saying before even for people that aren't artists this upsurge in vinyl records yeah I think those people that have a record for like I do I was talking with a buddy and he was saying it just slows things down yes and so I think everyone feels to a degree if you can do something the analog versus the digital way if you're not always looking for efficiency that's right but you're looking to slow down people can get a sense that even just by putting on a record clearly spending two to four hours uh, you know, creating this artwork uh, even has probably a more profound impact. Yeah, well, you, can, you know, you're, you're sitting in my office, and uh, you can see, uh, you know, to your left is my MacBook Pro, which I use for work, and I spend, you know, inordinate amounts of time on. Uh, and then you can see across across from the, in the room, you see my electric typewriter, yeah. which uh, is actually I, I like a lot more than the computer. <laughs> uh, you know, if I have to write somebody a letter, or if I've mm. got any kind of correspondence, it all happens on the electric really? typewriter. Wow. Yeah. This is an old typewriter from the 70s or something, an old Smith Corona. And, um, yeah, I think, I think these things are wonderful. So I'm trying to, like you say, I'm trying to balance out the fact that, yes, I have to be in front of all of these screens all right. the time. So what's the antidote to that? Um, and it's not to say that art that is created on the screen is less valuable or viable. Right. It just... It's just not for me. For sure. So that's it. And another piece that I think is uh, worth lingering on, as you were saying, there is there are these elements of imperfection with the letterpress printing, and that's something that you've had to embrace in a particular way that initially wasn't easy. It does remind me of an art form that's had a deep impact on me, which is the wabi-sabi art form from Zen Buddhism. And the shorthand in English is finding beauty in the imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. And when I've introduced this to students, many of them take a sigh of relief, like, oh, that w we can actually embrace those qualities of ourselves and the world around us, because so often we're striving for this perfection that doesn't really exist, or even if you hit that crest, you're immediately right down in the valley again. And so I think that it is a necessary countervailing force to, to these images that we're uh, kind of you know, bombarded with about what we should be doing, how things should look, and sometimes to embrace the way things really are uh, can can actually create a little bit more peace. <laughs> oh, I, I think so. It's funny that you mentioned Wabi Sabi because uh, the artist that owns the studio where I print is from a Buddhist family, and so we talk about Wabi Sabi mm -hmm. all the time, and she constantly reminds me that it's okay for something, you know, not to be exactly the way... I want it to be. And what's cool is these are really originals, is they can't be reproduced in that particular way because they've you've produced a certain amount, and, and as a result, uh, unless even if somebody tried to replicate them, <laughs> they wouldn't even be able to with the same uh, technology. So I think there's something unique about that, is really having an original that can't be replicated. Yeah, you know, every piece is unique. Everything that comes off the press is, a, is, is in a sense, a one-off. There are very slight variations if I'm if I'm doing well, there are really slight variations, but you know there there are changes that happen in terms of the pressure of the press and the color of the ink, and so you know I'll usually run about thirty copies of of every print that I make, uh, and there is always variation. I change paper 
Uh, I'll, I'll use different colored papers. I'll change the color of the ink half, halfway through the run. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, they're 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 in a sense they're they're relatively unique, but they are also they're also copies. Um, the idea of making copies is important to me. Uh, it it's related to this idea of memory, and uh, memory is a is kind of a big issue for me. I'm a collector. Uh, and I collect a lot, lots of stuff. I collect a lot of design ephemera uh, and other trinkets. And if I, if I, sh I've got a stamp collection. I've got a button collection. Uh, and I collect these things because I believe that by collecting things, it endows me with uh, a permanence uh, that none of us really have. Yeah. Uh, that if I have things like this, that I have more meaning in my life uh, that if I don't necessarily remember other people will remember me so this idea of memory and the reason that we make copies of things is for memory so if a book is produced and there's only one or two copies once those two copies are gone we won't remember that anymore right. uh, but and that's really the value of Gutenberg right there is that you know once you can produce something in uh, a decent quantity that there's a chance that somebody will actually remember it right. uh, and it will it will kind of get stuck in their in their brain right. and uh, and so my feeling is that if I can make 30 <laughs> copies of something right. and I can put it up 30 to 30 different times that you might see it three or four or five times and that you might stick in your memory yeah. so you know the act of of multiples is important. Right. A lot of people with, in the art world will say, well, multiples aren't as valuable. You know, I want an original, uh, an original painting. There's only one, and this is the most important one. And I appreciate that, but uh, I'm trying to reach people. Yeah. And the more people that I can reach, the better. I'm an advertiser yeah. and an artist. And so I need to advertise the work, and I, I like this idea of, of multiples, and I like this idea of, of building... A, a deeper sense of memory for the people that see the work, but also it helps me in terms of my ultimate goal of either being right. remembered or, you know, right. or just collecting a lot of stuff. Well, it makes me think of <clears throat> the idea of copies. The oldest printed book in the world is of the Diamond Sutra, a Buddhist text which was found in the caves of western China. And it's probably about 12, over 1,200 years old. Clearly, it wasn't the only one. It was a copy. And so whether or not this will ever be elevated to you know, the status of the Diamond Sutra, I think it's the same point, that the more copies are, who knows who might discover one of these things, not just during one's generation, but even beyond. Yeah. Which I think uh, is you know, is interesting idea. The more that you might be able to have, then the more even people beyond our time horizon uh, might, might discover this. Yeah, and not to go all the way back to the beginning, but we were talking about medieval art. Mm -hmm. And I can just imagine the monks slaving over their, their, right. their, their drawing tables, you know, copying... Uh, a variety of different uh, religious texts yeah. and hymnals, and and this is you know this was before Gutenberg, of course, and uh, but that was extremely important. You know, you had to get the word out, and uh, right. that's what I'm trying to do with this. I'm trying to get the word out. So, speaking of getting the word out, let's act. We've been beating around the bush. Let's get to the art. Uh, good. Uh, one of the pieces that I just uh, I just find hilarious uh, 
is uh, dental tourism. But I guess, so we can mention a number of the different pieces you have, but I guess, first of all, where do you get these? Are these just conjured from uh, the ether of your own mind, or is there some sort of inspiration for these? Yeah, so uh, I believe that artwork should be biographical. Uh, sometimes it's autobiographical. Other times it's just biographical. Other people create work that is, you know, uh, that is just, you know, purely decorative. It's beautiful stuff. Uh, I certainly like plenty of work like that. But for me, it has to have a deeper meaning. Uh, and it's, and, and we'll talk about my work and we'll talk about text uh, and the meaning of the text. But this is all kind of wrapped together, this right. idea of deeper meaning. Um, so what I've done is I've gone out uh, into my rural community and I've started uh, uh, taking content from our local listserv and I use that as the basis for the work that gets printed, the text. Uh, and in doing that, I'm creating a biography of my community. Right. Now, granted, it's not always a flattering biography and, <laughs> and sometimes it's a tangential biography, but the words are coming from the community. So, so we use a couple different tools now to communicate uh, in, in the community. One is a, a Yahoo group, and uh, this thing's been around for years. And I call it a listserv, but it's really you know a little bit uh, more current than that. And people post all kinds of things. So if somebody hears something in the middle of the night and they don't know what it is, they'll post a message to the Yahoo group saying, did you hear that and what was it? Uh, if your dog is lost, you post yeah. that to the Yahoo group. Uh, if you've got an event that you want to publicize, that goes on the Yahoo group. If you have a, a point of view on a variety of different topics, if you have something to sell, something to buy, uh, whatever it is, it goes on the Yahoo group. And uh, I find it's just an amazing uh, breadth of different kinds of unique content. Yeah. Uh, there's a, you know, in terms of the community where I live, there's a, a lot of New Age spiritualism, which uh, happens to uh, translate to my work quite well. Uh, and then there's a lot of kind of very kind of nuts and bolts stuff. Um, and so that's where the content comes from. Right. But I, I tend to manipulate it a little bit uh, because it needs editing. Uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a writer, I have a responsibility to edit it a little bit. Uh, so uh, I don't take the words out of context. I, I use them in the context that they were created, but I don't necessarily include every part of the sentence. Right. Uh, I'll take pieces of sentences. I'll do snippets. I'll do a, a, one, a title or a part of a title. I'll take just one word sometimes. Um, and in, in doing that, I can imbue the work with my own personality while still creating that biography that I talked about. Because in the, in the end, it's, it's my work. And I wanted to uh, have my essence involved, not only my hand in creating it on the press, but also my personality. Um, I love playing with words. Uh, just in general, if you want to go out and hang out with me at the bar, we'll go down to the bar and, and I will talk incessantly and I will just, you'll say something and I will just riff right off of that. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's my thing. That's, I just, words are my thing. So, uh, so that's what I do here. I try to find ways to pull things out of context to perhaps give them a different meaning or to kind of make you laugh or smile 
or think twice or get scared, uh, whatever. I'm trying to hit all the, the emotions here. And, sure. uh, so that's kind of the the the. the so what's the sampling of some? I mentioned one dental tourism. Yeah, dental uh, tourism which definitely so. didn't scare me. It definitely made me laugh. <laughs> I mean, maybe well, it should be scary. Well, you should know. actually be interested because if you've got some, if you've got some dental issues and yeah. uh, and the price of uh, uh, dental work in the United States is is too yeah. high, there's someone here in my community who has gone out of the country to uh, to get some dental work done, and and they. They'd like to share that information with you. For sure. So, uh, so one of the things about the dental tourism piece is that if you if you look at it closely, I've selected a typeface that actually looks like teeth coming mm. together. So I place the word dental on top of the word uh, tourism. So you have kind of the upper jaw and the lower jaw, huh. and the type itself feels very uh, tooth-like. Yeah. Uh, so I am trying to create some sort of relationship mm. between the words and. Uh, and the actual way that yeah. they're placed on the paper. Cool. What are some other, this is a small sampling you have before us here, but uh, just read a couple uh, uh, distinct pieces that come sure. to mind. Well, you know, I, I, I wish that your, your podcast had, had a video attached to it. I do too, yeah. But we're going we're gonna to go for it anyway. So I recently printed one. Uh, this one says, Local Band Seeks Belly Dancer. <laughs> Uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, uh, <laughs> especially because I don't know any bands around here that uh, that require belly dancers. Uh, and then the way I said it is kind of interesting. The way the type reads, it certainly reads local band seeks belly dancer, but I also read it uh, as local dancer seeks belly band. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought would be, would be quite interesting for a, a local dancer who's trying to lose weight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is. Yeah. Uh, here's one. Uh, this is. Uh, this is. It's very serious. In fact, it, and I, I learn a lot about what's going on in the world from the Yahoo group. It turns out that there's a global epidemic of silenced song, and uh, I didn't know it was going on. I'm. Cer I certainly. I, I care deeply about it, but I had to make a, a poster about it and. In this case, you know, the word epidemic is, is, in, is in red and it's quite larger than the other words, uh, just to make sure that we, you know, grab your attention. Um, this is a, a nice piece that I like. You know, uh, here I, I have a, a piece and it just has the letters ISM or ISM, and there's a big, long, uh, kind of like underline in front of that, so you can fill in the blank, because there are a lot of, lots of isms that get posted uh, by the community, and this way you get to pick. And you, you just fill Your in favoritism. You fill you or at least favorite. Yeah, you you, <clears throat> you you fill in the you fill in the blank. Um, and then here's one that uh, is kind of typical for my community. Uh, somebody was talking about an event, and they said that each quest is unique. And then they followed it up by, "Please register by Friday." <laughs> You know, there's this kind of juxtaposition of the the importance of the message. Like, my God, we've got something very very serious right. going on here. But yeah. please register by Friday. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the ceremony will begin promptly at seven thirty. That kind of stuff. So, uh, so that's kind of something that I'll do. Um, and it it just kind of goes from there. Sometimes it's just one word. You know, a word like latex or lost or clarity. Uh, sometimes it's it's two words, something like death row or uh, or pressure cooker. Uh, sometimes I'll take a word and I'll break it apart. So a word like oasis, I can break up into three different pieces. So mm. it it reads 
O as is, yeah. which is oasis. And I like to take words and kind of pull them apart like that. I have another one here that you're looking at where I take the, the word, the words meat eaters. And the way I said it, I, mm. I set the, the, the E-A-T in meat and the E-A-T in eaters. And so you just see eat, eat. But if you look closely, you'll yeah. see some smaller letters around it, which, which kind of gives you the full message, which right. is meat eaters. Uh, so I'm always looking at ways that I can play with type and, and split words apart, which is just kind of my uh, personality. Here's one last example. Uh, this one is actually two different pieces of content that I've mashed together. The first was upbeat and the second was beat up. And so I create one piece out of that and you can read it either way because the word up is is kind of printed twice and the word beat is in the middle. So it's either upbeat or beat up, right. which are great because they're completely different than one another. So For that's sure. kind of that's kind of what I'm doing. Yeah, as you're, you know, alluding and as you're describing your your process and your work, there's an element of deconstruction to some of, uh, in particular, like Oasis or Meat Eaters in particular. And I know this is something that's also philosophically influenced your work, deconstruction, uh, Derrida, and and sort of the quest for truth. So do you want to riff on a bit uh, the role that deconstruction has played uh, in your kind of worldview and how that relates to your art? Yeah, I think that's that's great. Uh, thank you for that setup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I first learned the word deconstruction as it related to architecture because I was working in the architecture and design community. And what it means for architecture is different than what it means for text and language. Uh, in architecture, this idea of deconstruction is allowing the bones of a structure to play a more prominent role in in what we see and experience as as people that interact with the buildings um, and it can be quite interesting um, but in what's an example of that in architecture so you, you would reveal what's behind the the drywall yeah sort of something okay. so, I think that's kind of a, a very simple example yeah yeah, right. yeah sure uh, yeah um, but in, 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 in learning about it as it related to architecture, I wanted to learn more about it. I, I knew that there was more to it. Uh, and so when I started reading uh, the philosophers uh, who, were, who were writing about deconstruction in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, I began to really understand what they were trying to say as it relates to, to language, this idea that any piece of text has an innate ambiguity in it, meaning that we approach text from our own lens. It's a cultural lens. It's an, a lens based on our experience. Uh, it's, a, it's a lens based on other uh, forces that kind of play into our lives. And so we can read a passage or a book and we can come to a different conclusion than somebody else about what it said or what it meant. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. Um, the philosophers, uh, Derrida, uh, for example, uh, is, is, is saying that um, what you write is not what people interpret. Meaning that as a writer, you can't own 
meaning. Right. Uh, that you just put it out in the world. You may have a point of view about you know what you were trying to say, but once it's out there, people are going to interpret it completely uh, on their own, and you have to be okay with that. And I think that that's very interesting. Uh, and it relates a lot to my work, which I certainly uh, want to talk about, but it also relates to this idea for me in uh, the start of 2020 yeah. uh, with this idea of truth. Sure. You know, we've been, we've been focused on this idea of truth for a long time now. Uh, a guy like Stephen Colbert was talking about truth back in, you know, the uh, early 2000s with his, the, he, he coined the term truthiness. Yeah. And, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a, a problem back then, but now it's become a big problem. Uh, we don't know what's true anymore. Uh, and so in a sense, this idea of deconstruction has transcended text based, uh, uh, experiences. And it's now kind of just, it's, it's filtering out, uh, and just dropping all over our lives. So like, sure. you know, it's not just architecture, it's not just text, it's news, it's uh, the conversation you have with your neighbor, yeah. it's, uh, it's everything. There, nobody knows what to believe anymore. Right. And the sad part about it is that uh, the people who are most responsible for our successes as individuals or as a culture are the very people who are making it harder for us to understand what's real and what isn't real. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that is, it's, it's amazing to me that, that, that I imagine what the philosophers uh, who, who studied this topic mm -hmm. would think in 2020 to see that deconstruction has finally pretty much uh, co-opted every mm -hmm. aspect of our lives at this point, that, you know, that we can look at the same thing. Right. We can look at the same fact and come, come to very different conclusions about that fact. Uh, so that to me is, it's scary on one hand, it's humorous on another, <laughs> right. uh, but it has real world implications that you're seeing every day. And so uh, my work tends to be humorous. It's not politically charged, although I do have some work that is a little more politically charged. Uh, but the idea that you can take text and you can, in a sense, pull it from its original context and force people to come to a conclusion on their own about what it really means yeah. is, uh, I think, very interesting. Uh, there's no truth in my work. You create your own truth. Um, there was truth originally when I found the content from my community's uh, different list-serve environments, uh, but there's no truth anymore. Hmm. Uh, by taking it out of context, I have stripped that away, and you have to create your own truth in much the same way hmm. that we have to create our own truth in, in every other aspect of our lives. And I think that that is hard for people. Right. Uh, a lot of people look at my work, and they don't necessarily understand it or they mm. don't they have a hard time connecting to it mm. uh, and that's okay you know it's interesting with the context you are providing to this sort of appropriated language is in many respects it's sort of a sign of the times oh it is you yeah. know I mean it really is a very accurate kind of depiction um, of sort of the 
the world we're living in. I wanted to circle back to what you were saying about deconstruction, how these ideas and, and basically universities in the 50s, 60s, and 70s have now really trickled down into all aspects of our life. And you're saying now uh, that you know, we, can't, we can interpret facts very differently. In some cases, we're not even dealing with the same facts. We're kind of conjuring certain facts. And I think what's fascinating, I've talked with a number of people about this, that let's say in the 80s, uh, for example, uh, if you're in this country, there may have been a handful of networks before cable developed or your local paper like the San Francisco Chronicle. So whether you were liberal or conservative, you were dealing with the same sources. Even if you wanted to go to the sports page, you were going past the business page, you saw the headlines, and everyone was at least dealing with, for the most part, the same facts. They might interpret those differently now. Uh, if you're just getting your, your news through Facebook that's totally tailored to what you want to hear, you might not even be dealing with journalists. You could just be dealing with glorified op-ed columnists or in some cases just some random person that happens to resonate with your own particular worldview. And I think what's dangerous about that is because some people might have websites that quote look professional in some cases they might not look professional at all but now you can just bypass this idea of gatekeepers uh, people that actually studied journalism and had some sort of integrity when it came to vetting sources and trying to kind of get down to some semblance of objective reality or some semblance of facts and now in some cases that's just completely eclipsed for just you know confirmation bias which I think it makes it way more challenging than just, okay, how do you interpret this piece of data? In some cases, some people don't even have the data. <laughs> yeah. and they're coming up with their own. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so in many respects, I think that it's, it's even more extreme, uh, you know, like the situation. Maybe not everybody, but many of us live in. So how can we actually have a conversation about a particular topic that allegedly affects us all? Some people don't even think that's real. Yeah, so this is interesting, uh, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're spot on, obviously. Um, so, you know, the, and it brings up an issue of, of another area of interest for me, tangentially, is this idea of media literacy. You right. know, how, how do we teach primarily our kids to become media literate, uh, especially in the age of social media? Uh, but that's probably a conversation for another day. What, uh, what your comment reminded me of was uh, Senator Patrick Moynihan, who said, uh, uh, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own set of facts. Right. Uh, which is very true, and it's been since forgotten, right? You know, that doesn't seem to hold water anymore. Um, but my feeling, you know, not to talk politics in, instead of art, uh, is that uh, when facts disappear, so does democracy. Right. That we are in a spiral that we perhaps may never get out of. Uh, and you're already seeing a lot of fractures in our democracy, in our country. You know, you've got the state of Jefferson, which is up in you know, Northern California and yeah. Southern Oregon. Uh, it's not, you know, obviously not a real state, but there are people that, yeah. um, that want to create this kind of 51st state. And I I've seen a flag flying in my neighborhood. Sure, that's the sure, area. sure. Uh, and then uh, I recently read about another area, which is in eastern Washington, that wants to, you know, there are people mm. there that want to kind of create their own state. Uh, so right. uh, this kind of fracturing, I think, is the result of, of what we're talking sure. about. And so I think democracy suffers when, uh, when we can't agree on 
on what's real, what's right. true. Um, uh, and so my, yeah, my work is, is part of that continuity in that, uh, that there is no truth to it. Uh, there's only the truth you create right. or distill from it based on your own, your own point of view and your own experiences. For sure. Yeah, and this death spiral uh, you were mentioning that, that we're sort of in the free fall of, it seems that this kind of media space is ripe for a demagogue. Uh, some people think that's exactly who sort of emerged, but however you want to call it, authoritarianism in some sort of way, shape, or form, especially when there's this sense of chaos that many people feel, uh, both in their immediate lives and in the world at large, with 24-hour news cycles, so it's not just the hurricane in the East Coast of the United States, but it's what's happening around the world, and often a lot of what we're hearing uh, is not quite is not positive. It's it's quite negative, and it's not to discount that negative isn't happening. But I think it's just reinforcing that you know the world's going to hell, or it's just we're descending the layers of it in, in some sort of respects. And so I'm curious when you think about uh, authoritarianism, you think about propaganda art from the 20th century. Sure. Um, do you feel that we're living in a day and age where some of those things are on the rise in a place like our own country where all of a sudden something that we never could have thought um, we could have been so swayed by that now it seems a sizable portion of the population might be swayed by propaganda, whether we call it art or otherwise, but do you think that some of those things are, are underway? I do. You know, now... It's, it's important for me to say that, that my work, and I mentioned this uh, at the beginning of our conversation, I'm not, a, I'm not an activist artist, but I do see that there are more and more artists that are activists, uh, that they have a specific uh, point of view, a specific political point of view, and it is very evident in the work that they're creating. Um, everything is propaganda especially today. Right, uh, everything. Everything is propaganda. Mm. Uh, except, my, except my work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because you don't have any truth. <laughs> that, that's, 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 that's right. Uh, no, but, but, you know, these days, everybody has an ulterior motive. Everybody's right. trying to push a specific agenda. Uh, and the result is that everything is propaganda. Uh, and there's so many more ways to disseminate propaganda today than there were you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago through, uh, now through social media and, uh, and other types of technology, right. that it, it's, you know, it's two things. Yes, it's scary, but I, I must say for me, it's kind of boring <laughs> and tiring. Um, for those of us, again, that, that are media literate, uh, who understand that everything that a specific news outlet, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC or, or you know, some other, you know, right wing or, or, or left wing uh, website says or uh, uh, wants us to believe is true. Well, I, I understand that, that, you know, I have to question that yeah. before I before I accept it, that I have to do the research. Uh, and, um, you know, if if you're literate enough, then you get tired of this stuff. If you're not literate, then you continue to be swayed by it. I'm bored of it. You know, right. I wish, you know, I want to go back to facts just for the sake of just kind of just <laughs> get, getting away from all the propaganda. And uh, it's, it's tough. It, it's really hard. Well, I, you know, facts do create a, you know, I guess consensus facts create a center of gravity, if you will, <clears throat> which, which we seem to desperately need. 
on a collective level. Now, I want to get back to truth. And while you're saying that your uh, artwork in, is not trying to convey a sense of truth, what artwork do you think does convey a powerful sense of truth that might be worth viewing, contemplating in this day and age where, you know, all of a sudden facts are just disappearing for, uh, for whatever is convenient? Yeah, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to answer your question, but before I answer it, uh, when I talk about truth and I say that there's no truth in my work, uh, I say that based on this idea of deconstruction, but it is true that my work is a reflection of the community I live in. Right. It is a true biography, so it does have some level of truth right. to it. Uh, to answer your question about what kind of artwork is, is, is really true, uh, I would think that you'd have to go back to abstract expressionism. Okay. That if you go back to something that is uh, devoid of a specific image, person, uh, location uh, that you can latch onto, and all you're left with is your own emotional reaction mm. to it, emotions are true. Interesting. You, yeah. you, you can't, get, you know, it makes me happy, it makes me sad, it makes me queasy, whatever the emotion is, yeah. it makes me bored, uh, whatever it is, your, your emotions are true. Right. It's, that's all that's left. Uh, and so I think that, you know, this kind of abstraction is valuable in that sense. You just, it's you and, and what you're looking at uh, or experiencing and what you're left with as you walk away from it. Anytime you start to bring in words or images, uh, then you know, artists, people are trying to drive what you're supposed to think or what, you know, they want you to think. Uh, and, so yeah. So you yeah. seem to be suggesting that the way you're defining truth is what seems to be true to the individual, what their sort of raw sensory cognitive experience of X might be, unfiltered by what uh, artists, thinkers might be trying to convey. Now, do you feel it's possible for the collective to experience some sort of transcendent truth, something that is more universal? Because, of course, this is what a lot of deconstruction and postmodernism posited, that there were no universals anymore. <clears throat> do you feel that there, and that's one of the problems and challenges of today, is we don't believe in universal facts. Yeah. Uh, and so when it comes to maybe a scientific reality, it seems many of us wouldn't go that far and say there's no such thing as science or scientific facts and universal truth in that regard. But when it comes to things that maybe go beyond the domain of science, do you feel that's a possibility? Well, I think that, you know, if, if in the realm of art, I think it might be possible. You might be able to hit upon a specific color that a majority of people agree is pleasing to the eye. Okay. I mean, there are, I think, you know, you could probably uh, run some kind of uh, data analysis, run some tests yeah. to determine what that color is. You know, you can go across the world and and show hundreds of thousands of people a variety of different colors and see if they all kind of hit upon what is, in a sense, beautiful. Right. Um, I think we have generally, uh, through our friends in the media, a, an understanding of what we find beautiful about one another in terms right. of our physical features. Sure. Uh, and then we reinforce those uh, in the media 
and uh, and we all seem pretty happy about that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that there are I think there are universal truths when it comes to to art uh, and beauty, but I think they are limited. I mean, we do we have been able to to take the world and splice and dice it into micro communities at this yeah. point. And every micro-community has its own area of interest uh, and what they hold valuable right. culturally. Uh, and they will always tell you that their truths are you know, unique to them, uh, what, they, sure. what they think is beautiful, what they think is you know, unattractive. Um, and that's good, too. I mean, I think that's, that's healthy. In, in many respects, it's empowering. Yeah. And, and you can see the Internet, which is this great divider in a lot of different ways with filter bubbles and so forth is also a uniter for these micro-communities, these affinity groups, people that might not be able to really connect with their tribe in their local community, but maybe via online has been able to connect. So in one sense, that should be celebrated. And yet, as things become so balkanized, the very thing that might be empowering to the, the small micro-communities is the very thing that's preventing the larger communities of being able to connect and even have a conversation. Yeah. And so it is interesting thinking about the role that art might be able to play. Uh, and art, in this case, is quite elastic from popular entertainment uh, to something that might be street art, uh, that, that might not have the same sort of impact. But... Um, I think sometimes we uh, don't recognize the power of art and expression and creativity. And uh, I think it's just a really interesting topic to contemplate, even if there aren't easy answers. Well, there, you know, it's interesting because if you look at uh, art and commerce tied together, you'll see that there are examples where uh, art plus commerce have, uh, have worked together to solve that problem, right. uh, it's, it's, you can see it in the rise of uh, the Chinese uh, uh, movie industry. Hmm. Uh, you know, the Chinese movie industry is now uh, financially backing a lot of what would have been typically Hollywood films, yeah. and so you have Hollywood actors that are uh, in movies that are backed by Chinese uh, production companies, with the proviso that the film has to appeal to both audiences that it has to appeal to an American audience and it has to appeal to a Chinese audience. So you're taking two very different cultures and you're creating a product that's going to, yeah. a, a piece of artwork that is going to appeal to both of them. So it's right. going to have those kinds of sensibilities. Uh, and that's what the role of commerce is. Right. Commerce's role is to is to take the rough edges and smooth them out so that it appeals to a larger audience so that we right. can, you know, we can make more sure. money. Uh, so it is happening. Uh, but. What's fascinating, you bring up China. I was uh, in a previous podcast, I talked with this lecturer at UC Berkeley, who's a Asian area expert. And I was asking, she knows a lot about China. I said, do Chinese students know about Ai Weiwei, who is one of the more renowned global artists? And, and they have and, and no... politically active. And totally politically active. And he's speaking truth to power in China yes. and, and abroad. And people in China have no idea who he is. So it's interesting how China, with its authoritarian stance, and even with the Internet, because, of course, it's known as the Great Firewall there, there's a lot they can't access, how they, we know, or people have heard, that people in the younger generations have no idea about Tiananmen Square, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about with the Internet and how you might be able to hack 
pack that in some sort of capacity to be able to censor that and also this this artist so it is fascinating now we're not even we're close to china but if we're on this sort of death spiral <laughs> uh in some sort of capacity um you know how do we put some sort of some measures in to prevent uh some of that happening even if it's you know orders of magnitude far far more benign here or so it seems so I think these are the kinds of questions, and this is exactly what art does. I think it makes you contemplate, makes you think. Whether you love it or you don't, one of the most important things is to think. I'm reminded of this great quote by General Patton. He says, if everyone's thinking the same thing, someone's not thinking. And, and it seems very easily we're sort of on the slippery slope to where it's conformity is what's important. Sometimes people, because of the controversy, don't want to have to think about the gray area. And so it's like you're on this side, you're on that side. Uh, but often <clears throat> reality is somewhere in between. Yeah, I, I'm certainly a nonconformist. Uh, what is interesting about uh, what you said is that you, you, it's, it's hard to imagine that you can erase history. Right. But we're, see, we're seeing it happen, you know, whether it's, you know, textbooks in Texas or it's Tiananmen Square in China. There, we do have the ability to erase history, yeah. uh, which again goes back to this idea of, in a sense, truth. Uh, and um, and I spoke about it early on about this idea of memory, uh, right. which is which really is history and how important it is to me. Uh, so you know when I see and hear about these kinds of things, you know the fact that you know a billion people in China can't access certain content, uh, that's yeah. that's real troubling. Um, so, uh, you know, that's why I think I've, I've chosen the street as my, yeah. as my venue for, uh, for my work. Uh, I recently uh, put an installation in in a, in a parking garage at a mall, uh, which on one hand is really funny. On the other yeah. hand, it, I, get, I get good audience uh, traction there, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, for sure. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not interested necessarily in, in, uh, in putting something up in a gallery Sure. Although, if there are any gallerists listening, yeah. I can be persuaded. Uh, but really, you know, I, I'm more interested in in, in this idea that uh, that I can I can reach the the most amount of people as right. as I can uh, in ways that are unpredictable and, and like like I said, nonconformist. Uh, so you know, it's it's. You know, you see it. You see it in Hong Kong. You see uh, people on the street. Right. The street is where. Is where things happen, right. and so that's why it's important to me that my work is on the street as well, um, because that's where people are going to to come away with something, and yeah. I don't care what they come away with, uh, right. but they come away with something, uh, which reminds me of that that you know typical question that that somebody would ask an artist, which is you know what did you mean, yeah. what, it's, what what's the meaning behind it, sure. and every artist worth their their salt always says. You know, they they push the question yeah. off, and they say, "Well, it's it's, it's whatever you right. want it to be," or uh, "Don't ask me that question," uh, <laughs> or if you have to ask that question, you don't understand. Whatever the the kind of canned response is, uh, there's some value to that. Meaning sure. that you know, if I tell you what it means, then you know, I didn't you know I didn't need to create it in the first place. I you know I I have no interest in explaining myself. Right. Uh, it's just I <clears throat> I. Absolutely no interest in trying to explain to to anyone why I 
did a certain thing. Sure. I'm only interested in your reaction to it. Of course, nobody ever tells me what their reaction is, but... <clears throat> it's provocative, and I, and I think that especially uh, getting a bit of the backstory behind it, the process, the technology that you use, some of the philosophical influences, I think it creates a gestalt uh, of the artwork in general, which, in my opinion, make, makes it much more powerful. Each piece in and of itself, uh, you can tell there's a lot of craftsmanship to it, there's a sense of beauty. Some of the, the words or words might, might be beautiful or funny, and so there's a kind of a quick reaction in that regard. But I do think that if someone is, is interested in the meaning, their own interpretation, then they have to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you know, uh, uh, I've always loved street art. I, I've always loved graffiti. Um, I have I've uh, written a little bit about the relationship between graffiti and deconstruction, hmm. uh, because there is a there is a strong relationship between graffiti artists or graffiti writing, as it's referred to, right. and deconstruction, uh, especially. Uh, in this idea that not only are you kind of creating your own reading of it, but uh, the development of completely new languages. So, mm -hmm. you know, graffiti artists are creating uh, letters that you can't even read. Right. They're creating a language that is that's kind of invisible to most of us. Interesting. So, so there's a lot of very interesting stuff going on on the, on the street uh, in general. Uh, but hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the value, I guess, uh, for me... Is 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 this idea of getting up, yeah. you know, which is intrinsic to graffiti? That it's about recognition. Yeah. Getting up is about recognition. You got to get your work out on the street to get the recognition. Now, in the case of of the early graffiti artists in this in the seventies, you know, we're talking about marginalized marginalized communities uh, where uh, you know spray painting your name or your tag on a wall uh, really meant something. Uh, and the more you could do it, you know, the more uh, recognition you got from your peers and the better you felt about yourself, especially right. when you come from a marginalized community. And remember, we're tying right back into this idea of memory again. Yeah. Like, why do I collect things? Because it gives me a sense of purpose, because it, it makes me real. Right. That's the same reason why these kids are spray painting walls. So uh, this idea of getting up is, is really what my work is about, too. And if you look at my work on the street, you'll see that I always include my name. In it, because uh, like any graffiti artist that is tagging with their name, I'm tagging also. Sure. I have I have a you know an ego uh, at some level. I want you to know who created this. Sure. I want the recognition, so you'll always see my name included as one of the letterpress prints within the installation that I create. Yeah. And uh, not to you know not to plug my own uh, website. <laughs> since we're talking about that kind of stuff, but uh, sure. I, I do have a website where you can see uh, examples of my work and installations. It's uh, gettingupper.com. So if getting up is gaining the recognition yeah. and, and feeling good about yourself, then getting upper must be better, right? Because, <laughs> because it just is. So it's gettingupper.com. Uh, and I have work that's for sale on the website. Uh, it's actually quite cheap. I sell these these letterpress prints for ten or twenty dollars a piece. Uh, they're great for refrigerators, of course. They're great if you want to actually use them and and create street art yourself. I always encourage that. Uh, and uh, you can actually frame this stuff too. It looks pretty good on the wall. I can I can concur. 
Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, the one piece that I wanted to mention, and this could be a good way of ra uh, you know, wrapping it up, is you're mentioning a graffiti artist and how so often the, the letters they're using are unrecognizable to the uninitiated, so they're creating a coded language. So they're not trying to get recognition from, you know, Mayor X. Uh, they're doing it probably from their community. And it's interesting how empowering that is to be able to create their own sort of language system. Maybe everybody else, maybe they find it in the same sort of way you're alluding to. They're having a response because you can't help it. It was on the subway or side of a building. Uh, but there is often, at least today, most people see that some degree of graffiti has become an art form, and there is a kind of beauty to it, even if they're not able to decipher what the language is. So I think that's interesting and empowering for what have historically been marginalized communities. Yeah, that and that really, that, that there's a, that moment where graffiti becomes artwork, right. and it's that moment where word becomes image. So you can't see the word. You can't read the word. You can't read the tag. Yeah. You just see a picture, and you either decide whether that picture is beautiful yeah. or not. Now, there's a lot of uh, poor quality graffiti on the street, uh, and so a lot of that can just be dismissed. But right. there's obviously a fair amount of graffiti on the street that is uh, created with a lot of, of passion and time, and, and is by and by talented uh, artists and. When word becomes image, is that's the point at which we accept it as art. Um, and the idea of word and image and this, this transference mm. that happens between them is a really interesting topic in its own right. Yeah, right. Uh, it, you know, you can see it uh, in something like the Coca-Cola logo. The Coca-Cola logo is a Spencerian typeface from the uh, mid-1800s uh, that was originally used for bookkeeping. Uh, and you can see it in the Ford. The Ford logo is another example of it. And uh, but when we see the Coca-Cola logo, yeah. we don't necessarily read it every time. We don't yeah. necessarily see it as type anymore. We just see it as a picture. Yeah. And that picture means something. For sure. Uh, you know, for, for us. So uh, graffiti is a little different, but not too different in the sense that you know when a word becomes mm. an image, that's when it really penetrates into our consciousness. And uh, it can be uh, it can be appreciated on new and different levels, and I think that's what's happening in graffiti. Yeah, that's fascinating. When words becomes images, there's a kind of synesthesia, you know, the blending of the senses in a particular way. Uh, when all of a sudden, I know that some people that have this uh, will wind up seeing color when they listen to music, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, or, or vice versa. So it's fascinating that maybe a hallmark of great art. Uh, at least word art can be the idea that when all of a sudden it's no longer just letters anymore. Yeah. But it conjures this image, which is, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Well, you know, you'll see in the way that I, I you know, when when your audience goes to gettingupper.com, and that's not a shameless plug, uh, <laughs> they will see how I will, I will uh, set up my type in ways that complement the words themselves yeah. uh, and try to create uh, specific images out of it. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a series of work that I created uh, based on a very well-known uh, letterpress printer named Jack Stauffaker, mm. who, uh, who was active uh, here in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And uh, he's kind of an idol to many uh, graphic designers. And so yeah. I did a series of pieces that are kind of an homage to, to Jack. 
mm. that that use letters in a way that you know I try to create um, pictures out of the letters, uh, but. In my yeah. case, it's still a specific word, yeah. uh, and uh, that you know that's uh, I'm always trying to do that kind of stuff. So that's kind of a another area that yeah, that I right. Focus on. Yeah, I, I, the the one poet really stands out. Yeah, you know, I'm, cool. I'm trying as I, as I'm, as we're recording this podcast, I'm trying to flip through uh, some of these to to pull them out so that I can show them to you. I got a lot of stacks of paper here in the uh, in the office. But uh, here's a, oh, a yeah. nice one. Wow. Uh, and I find these to be, of all the work that I do, these are the most beautiful because they are just, a lot of people just can't even read the word. Yeah. But they are beautiful pictures. Yeah, for sure. And this is when, this is when type becomes image. For sure. And uh, Wow. Yeah. So it's valuable. Very cool. So, we're going to definitely do part two maybe on media literacy, but is there anything else that you wanted to convey, any topics, any stones left unturned? No, I think that we've had a good conversation, uh, and uh, we've had a chance to talk about my work, and, uh, and a little bit about politics, which is Absolutely. always, which is always healthy in, in this uh, day and age, uh, and I encourage people to find out what they're passionate about and to find an outlet for that. Uh, we often live uh, lives that are kind of redundant, and uh, sometimes we can get down on ourselves or the people around us, and I think that we all have something that we could be doing to uh, bring a spark of interest and, and, and levity and uh, happiness into, into our lives. Amen. Excellent. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, Amos. Appreciate the conversation and gettingupper.com. Thank you. Yeah, all right. We'll see you all on the website. Sounds good to be continued.